Welcome to the Conservationists in Action podcast and broadcast series. Thanks for joining us. We're coming to you from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service National Conservation Training Center studio near Shepherdstown, West Virginia. For more than 25 years, we've been inviting prominent conservationists, writers, historians, scientists, filmmakers, photographers, and educators to discuss their work and share their passion for nature. If you're listening on podcast and would like to see the full presentation broadcast, visit us online at fws.gov broadcasts. Thanks for joining Conservationists in Action. Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm Randy Robinson, Outreach Coordinator here at the National Conservation Training Center. Our topic today is Diving Palmyra Atoll, a photographic journey to one of the most isolated islands in the world. I'm very happy to have my colleague Ryan Haggerty with me in the studio. Ryan works as a photographer and videographer for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's a senior video producer here at the National Conservation Training Center and serves as the regional diving safety officer. Ryan has been documenting fish and wildlife species around the country for 25 years. His specialty is underwater photography and videography in Appalachian rivers and streams. In April of 2023, he worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service dive team on the remote Almira Atoll in the Pacific. Ryan, thanks for being here to talk about your work. Thanks, Randy. I appreciate it. Now, did you have any trouble finding the studio? Uh, no, it was uh, right down the hall from my office, so it's, uh, it was a short commute. That's an inside joke, folks. Ryan's office is right around the corner here. So, you had quite the adventure over there in this past spring. First off, tell us what an atoll is. <laughs> well, I had to look that up, too, uh, before I went there. An atoll is really just a coral reef and it has a lagoon in the center and there may be other definitions of atoll but that's how this one was it was several minor uh small islands that were surrounding a lagoon and uh this atoll is uh not very big uh the main island that the camp is on is only about six or seven hundred acres and then the rest of the islands you basically have to get to by boat or aircraft now, give us an idea where in the Pacific this is located from points that we might know. Sure, and that is the tough part about the, and the name of this marine monument, uh, the remote, the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument, to use the, the proper name. It is very remote, and so you have to travel due south from Honolulu 1,000 miles and you basically hit it, and it's very close to the equator. And there's really no other landmass around it. Um, I was very happy when we were traveling on the airplane that it had three engines, because it's just blue water in between Honolulu and uh, Palmyra. And it's a lot of water. I've flown over the Pacific, and you fly for hours and hours and hours over water. Yes. But those islands are very interesting. You know, you don't think about it, but when you look at a map, there's thousands of those little islands scattered through there. And when I say little, I mean little, right? Yeah, the closest thing resembling an island, and it was really just north, 30 miles north of Palmyra, uh, was Kingman Reef National Wildlife Refuge. And I don't believe there's any uh, above land islands, above water islands uh, on that reef. It's just a shallow reef system. 
uh, probably more like Palmyra used to be before humans moved some dirt and coral around. And so there, are there any full-time inhabitants on the atoll? Yeah, it has never been colonized or populated with humans historically. Palmyra ha, um, has had a lot of visitors over the years, starting in the late 1700s, I believe. But until the Navy really brought a lot of people in there before World War II, and during World War II, that was its busiest time period in Palmyra's existence and the most consequential regarding uh, what was done to the island, to the atoll. Now, you went there with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service dive team, and how many folks were in your group? So I went there uh, with a special team that was doing a survey of the atoll, and there were six divers, a few refuge employees came down with us, and our boat captain, and that was very important because he was the guy keeping us safe as we tooled around the rough waters around Palmyra because it is, uh, it is not, not a calm area around there. There's a lot of swells, a lot of chop, and a lot of weather, and it just depends on the day. It changes very quickly. Now, when you say survey, were you looking for something specific? or? Yeah, um, the entire reason that we went was to do a survey for Crown of Thorns starfish. And this sea star is very spiky, as its name sounds, Crown of Thorns. It can get up to about one meter across at its largest, and it is very prolific. Now, it is native to the Indo-Pacific region, but what the scientists are worried about is that it seems to be getting into an outbreak status. And what that means is normally the crown of thorns sea star is, I think, at a population density of 0.2 per acre. But we would come up from some surveys and dives and have counted 50 on one drift dive. Now, we are not the first conservation group to be concerned about crown of thorns. In the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, they've had a really bad problem with them and have, have been working to try to tamp down their populations for a while now. And so what they have learned, we're now putting into effect. And the reason why we did that survey is we didn't want to get to the point that Australia was, where these sea stars are just on top of each other. So what I haven't told you is why are we concerned that they overpopulate? Well, it's about what crown of thorns eats, and they eat coral reefs. And so they basically extrude their stomach through their mouth and digest the coral reef and then move on. And so the way you detect that from above um, when you're searching for these sea stars, because they're very camouflaged, or as the biologists like to say, they're very cryptic, hard to find. And so you're searching, and I'll tell you about the searching in a second, but you see a bright white spot of newly eaten coral as opposed to the, the regular coral, and it just stands out like a searchlight almost. And if you search right around there, you normally find the crown of thorn starfish. So um, the way we searched uh, initially for some of these uh, starfish was we would snorkel, but we were towed behind a boat snorkeling, and we had a special wing that we would use that would help us kind of control our descent and kind of maneuver underwater while breath holding. And when we came up, we would put a hand in the air that signaled, oh, I've seen one, I've seen two, I've seen zero. And the biologist would make a map using their GPS. And that would concentrate where we would scuba dive. 
Because you can't, you only have so much time underwater when you're, you're on surf, you're on air, so a tank full of air. So you have to make that time count. Very interesting. So this wing that you were using while you were snorkeling, how deep would that allow you to go? So um, think of um, someone being towed skiing behind a boat. It's basically a tow rope like that, maybe 100 feet long. Mm -hmm. And so you have a limited amount of dive, but some of the better breath holders in the group went at least 15 to 20 feet underwater doing that. And uh, so that would allow them to view the bottom a little better, depending on how deep the ocean was at that point. And there was really great clarity most of the time. So you could see 50, 100 feet down. Now, I've seen a few of your photographs, the beautiful, big, huge manta ray and so on. And by the way, right after this interview with Ryan, we're going to have Ryan's full presentation with slides, his photographs and video. So stay tuned for that immediately following our interview here. And you got some fantastic photographs. But getting back to the survey and the yeah. dive part, so you did the survey initially, then you guys went back and put on scuba gear right. and dove down. And then how deep were you going roughly with your, with your scuba gear? Well, um, the ocean bottom and the coral reef, depending on where you were on the atoll, is, is really variable. Um, so I tried to stay a little more shallow because I was the junior member of this ocean team. There was incredible amount of dive experience, really experienced divers and scientists out there. And my dive, the amount of experience I have, I gauge in the hundreds of dives. These folks are in the thousands of dives. So they're really experienced. And I tried to stay a little shallower than they were just to conserve my air. But generally around from 20 feet at its shallowest all the way to 70 feet to 90 feet. That was kind of the, the area we were playing in, working in. <laughs> now, I know you do a lot of freshwater diving in rivers and lakes. How would you describe the difference between an ocean environment and a freshwater environment like we have in rivers and streams? It's a, it's a whole different world, I would imagine. It is different, and it's different in how you dive. It's different mostly in um, visibility first. Freshwater environments can be clear. You could be in a very clear system in Alaska or smaller streams in, on the east, but normally rivers are quite uh, cloudy underwater, and so you have much, quite a bit of limited visibility, anywhere from zero to, at the most, 10 feet to 15 feet visibility. So at Palmyra, we would have at least 150 feet of visibility, unless we were getting closer to the lagoon. Sometimes the lagoon got a little murky, but I'd still laugh at the ocean divers for saying that it was a, you know, a murky day out, and because it was still a good river day. Oh, 150 feet, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, some of your photographs just boggle the mind uh, how clear that water is. It's just absolutely beautiful. And what kind of marine life did you see while you were down there? Uh, that's what is so incredible about Palmyra. Um, it is so remote. It is so pristine. Even with, you know, the naval base that was built there during World War II, they did have to blast a channel through the water so ships could get inside the atoll and build that naval base. But that being said, it's still in a very pristine condition. Uh, they've removed some uh, shipwrecks over the years. They've done great work out there, and the survey is part of that. The survey for the Crown of Thorns is to make sure that this, this reef continues to be 
incredibly pristine, and when the reef is pristine, it supports a great diversity of fish. And so hundreds of species of fish are down there, and uh, we would also see sea turtles, sharks. It's very, very sharky out there. And so I can't say that I had ever dove with a shark before. I may have in Florida one or two times, but it didn't stand out in my mind. You know there's sharks at Palmyra because they are everywhere. But it's a very healthy ecosystem, and a, and a healthy ecosystem, you should have sharks. And so, you know, that's a little scary when you've grown up watching Shark Week and you're not used to doing that and Jaws, you name it. But you turn and you look at the marine biologist beside you and they're happily diving away and that comforts you. <laughs> no, I did see a photo of that big manta ray. What was his wingspan roughly? Oh, gosh. That one seems like it, it has to be 10 to 15 feet or more. Um, they can be gigantic. And manta rays, I, there's a lot of magical creatures out in the sea, but manta rays seem like benevolent aliens that you're swimming with. Um, they're, they look like they're having fun. You can see them in trains. The four or five at a time will come by, and they'll be doing barrel rolls and loop-de-loops, and, and it, it's just really fun to watch. And it, at night in the camp, they'll flip on a light near the boat at the dock and because manta rays are planktivores, the light attracts food that the manta rays eat, and they'll come and just circle right in front of you and occasionally brush the feet of the people who have their foot in the water. <laughs> so it's, it's really special. You are shooting both photographs uh, and video. Tell us a little bit about the gear that you use. How would you protect it and so on? Oh, yeah. Um, and that's another huge difference between underwater photography on the East Coast or almost anywhere in the lower 48, barring Florida and some of the really the hotter areas in the Southeast. So Palmyra is extremely humid and you have to protect all of your electronics, not just because of the humidity, but because of the extreme salt environment. So we would put together uh, the camera gear inside the dry lab. There's a special building that has air conditioning and you put it together in an almost surgical environment and then you take it out to the ocean. And if something goes wrong, you really don't want to open that uh, underwater housing up while you're at sea. So that being said, I have uh, several big underwater housings, and you build them as carefully as you can and, uh, because you don't want them flooding when you're out diving. So it's quite the operation when you, and the process that you get uh, as you do a lot of that work. Now, were you documenting? I know that you were working with the uh, crown of thorns, the invasive starfish. Were you documenting some of that um, work? And, and describe to us what you were doing there. Sure. I've often joked that my job is studying biologists and what they do. So this was no different. Um, I was very interested in how the biologists were working, the processes that they use in carrying out the survey um, of crown of thorn starfish and how they euthanize some of them. And that's what also they were trying to do is, you know, they're knocking back that population a little bit. And so I would photograph and video their methods, shots of the landscape itself, the starfish, other sea life. Really, it was, that was the toughest part about being there is there was so much new uh, documentary food that uh, you feel like you don't have enough time. 
um, because you have to a certain amount of limited time underwater and topside too. And there was some amazing creatures topside in the atoll as well. Crabs, for one. Uh, crabs kind of rule the island, and there's several species of crabs, thousands of hermit crabs on the island. And the most fantastic crab is the uh, coconut crab. And it's, I think, the largest land crab in the world. And um, they have these huge main claws that can literally crack coconuts. And um, they're very interesting, and they come out at night. And so because the main atoll island, Cooper Island, is so crabby, you wear a headlamp. Anywhere you walk at night, you need a headlamp. Or you might step on a crab and either, well, you don't want to hurt the crab. You don't want to sprain an ankle or have a coconut crab pinch your toe off. So, <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting safety considerations when you're in Palmyra because the only way to get medical help is that could be 72 hours away from a Coast Guard flight. Wow. Um, so you, we, when we got there, we had very, very long safety talks, very necessary, but, uh, yeah, a good four hours, five hours of them drilling into us just how important it was that we not do anything silly. And I know some of the sea life can be venomous. I know certain, uh, certain snails and cowries and so on. Did they warn you about that? Yeah, um, we learned about some of that as we went. One, the crown of thorns, you don't want to touch them because they have stinging cells. So we had sticks, uh, PVC rods that we would interact with the starfish with if we wanted to bring them to another biologist. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. And sharks, you know, of course, everyone, you see a shark and you immediately get a bit cautious if you're sensible. But the thing that I thought was really interesting was the fish that you wouldn't suspect to be a threat to a diver. Um, there was a fish called a peach-faced triggerfish, fairly large uh, ocean triggerfish with peach rosy-colored cheeks. And they get very territorial uh, when they're nesting, and they have a beak. And uh, one of our divers had said at one dive she was kicking backwards away from one, and it took a bite out of her fins. And that's hard rubber, so you do not want those beaks of, of <laughs> most of those fish interacting with your flesh. Wow. Well, Ryan, I bet you have a million stories, but we're getting close to being out of time here. I do want to mention again that uh, right after our interview, we're going to have Ryan's full presentation that he'll do in the Bird Auditorium here at the National Conservation Training Center. And we're really looking forward to seeing those photographs and those video clips and uh, one final question, Ryan. What would be your what What are the things that are memorable for you about your trip out into the remote Pacific Islands? Uh, the teamwork is you can't get away from how magical the tropical paradise was. It's an amazing place, and that's why we preserved it. Uh, but when you're working in a remote environment. Your team is incredibly important. They're your friends, your coworkers, and your lifeline. And uh, it's, it's a really great thing to, to be a part of. Ryan, thanks very much for being here today. And thank you for joining us on Conservationists in Action. <music> <laughs>